It is one of those little-known facts that everybody knows that potato chips were invented by accident. That a man once ordered some potatoes and he didn't like how thick they were and he thought they needed to be cooked more and out of spite, the cook brought the, the potatoes back and cut them incredibly thin and just cooked the blazes out of them and salted them a whole bunch and said, ha, how do you like that? And the guy said, oh, I think we got a million dollar idea. But here's the thing, my favorite potato chips could not be invented by accident. See, I'm a Pringles man, and in order to make Pringles, they obviously need to take the potato, mush it down into some kind of pulp, put it into some kind of a mold, and then make it, because they're all the exact same shape. They're all this round, curvy shape, they're the exact same size, to the point where they kind of house inside of each other like Russian nesting dolls and fit perfectly in a can. And all the same, I love them. Anyone else here a, a, a Pringles guy, a Pringles lady? You like, you like Pringles? Oh, and, and you know, they had, in the 80s, they had this slogan that was so true. Because Lay's could say no one could eat just one, but you know what? That implies you could eat just two or three. Pringles, do you remember what Pringles' answer to that was? Once you pop, you can't stop. That's right. Once you pop, because you had to pop open the, the thing, there was a seal there, and there was like, it was like a tennis ball thing, right? And you open up and you pop, and once you pop, you can't stop. You can't have just one, you can't have two, you can't have three, you can't have four. You have to eat the whole thing. And I, sadly, am, am living proof of this. Once you pop, you can't, once you've had a taste of it, there's no turning back. You're going to dive in face first, and you are really going to get into this. You're going to consume all of it. And that's sort of what we see happening, I think, as we continue in Acts chapter 11. You see, Peter has popped open this can of worms, or maybe we call it a can of Pringles, that is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he, he, he starts by bringing it to Cornelius because the Holy Spirit prompts him. He goes into Cornelius' home, preaches the gospel, and now we see in the very next passage, same chapter, the gospel is going out further and further to the ends of the Roman earth as Jesus had predicted. But... Even though the official inclusion of Gentiles amongst the core church had only really been authorized a, a little while ago, we find out here that God had already been laying the foundation for some time. We're pointed back to chapter 8, verse 4. Remember this, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Why were they scattered? Because there had been the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen had been murdered in the open. The, the Sanhedrin, they weren't even afraid to do it themselves. They didn't feel compelled like they had with Jesus to go get permission from the Romans. They had become consumed with their rage, and they couldn't stop. They knew it. They said, once you kill one of us, they're going to kill lots of us. And so they began to run. They went to every corner of, of the, the earth there, and as they went um, amongst the Roman world, they were preaching the gospel. And so now, at this moment where God has said to Peter, yes, the Gentiles are going to receive grace too. The Gentiles, they don't have to become Jews first and proselytize and go through that. They can just accept my grace. We see at this moment in time, a church that is growing like crazy, spreading like wildfire. And it's incredibly exciting. And I want to look today at four characteristics of this growing church that we see in this passage here. Guaranteed, my wife just took the sermon notes thing and wrote one, two, three, four. Not a bad idea, Aaron. Not a bad idea at all. First of all, 
This church does not rely on outward circumstances. They don't see their success in spreading the gospel. They don't see God's ability to bring this powerful message further and further and change hearts as being tied to what's going on in the world or in their lives. And you see, we have to recognize the the book of Acts is organized less chronologically and more geographically. So it's not always this, then this, then this. It's mainly chronologically because the geographic spreading happens over time. But what's going on here, and by the way, if you're keeping score, these events take place about 15 years after the ascension of Jesus. When you read it all in one sitting, it seems like it's happening real quick. It takes some time. But what's happening here is happening concurrent with what we're going to read about next week in chapter 12. When James is killed and Peter is imprisoned. So there is a a persecution beginning. There are hard times in the church. And yet we see the church spreading, the gospel moving, lives being changed, many people coming to faith. They're, They're finding opportunities even in opposition. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So we see now new doors of ministry opened because of something that's a trial, a struggle a cause for concern. The gospel clearly did not wait for an official program to come out. Oh, we need some some evangelistic programs. No, the gospel moves on its own. The gospel does not wait for Peter to give the green light. We don't have the sense that these men from Cyprus and Cyrene are waiting with bating breath. Okay, we're ready to bring the gospel to the Gentiles if only we get the word from Jerusalem. No, they began preaching to the Gentiles because they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us as if he's in a prison cell. Rather, the gospel, the love, the mercy, all the fruit of the Spirit, they come pouring forth. And the good news has to come out of us or we will explode. And so the seed had already been scattered before Peter even had that vision of the sheet coming out of heaven. And before Peter had stepped foot in Cornelius' house. And it was because of persecution. God in his sovereignty takes things that men mean for evil and uses them for good. That's been a theme through the last several passages we've looked at. But then also look at this confirmation. That it is by the hand of God that many came to faith. This is verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is God working. This is not the result of clever marketing techniques or, or some kind of social movement. In fact, down in verse 30, we're going to see that the church undertakes a very noble project of helping, sending aid to another church, and it says that this happened by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. But that's not how these people came to faith. This is by the hand of the Lord. That's Old Testament language. When Elijah or David would do something mighty, we read in in 1 and 2 Kings that the hand of the Lord was upon them. It was God working. We need to be as the church, if we want to be a growing church, if we want to see revival in the land, 
true revival and not, and not the, the kind of multiplying uh, of superficial, oh, come in and, and see something interesting, but actual people coming to faith, we must remember that the moving of God's hand, the work of God's sovereign will, is the only thing that will truly bring people to faith. Reggie McNeil, a missiologist, said this on the topic, we can quit trying to drum up a breeze by generating a ton of frenetic church activity and instead hoist our sails to catch the wind that's already blowing. I like that image. Church is kind of trying to get some breeze going. There's already the wind blowing. They saw that wind and felt it and heard it. When they, they, they felt the, the presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when the Spirit descended and there was a mighty rushing wind blowing through the upper room. Jesus said of the working of the Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Even the effects of the persecution, in those things, God in His sovereign, mysterious will is blowing the wind to carry the scattered seed of the gospel to new areas and new people, people who must hear the gospel and respond if they're to live. So there was no reliance on outward circumstances, but rather on the moving of the Spirit. There was no attempt to generate some piddly little wind with a, with a, a fan, right? But, but rather to put the sails up and catch the wind that is already blowing. Secondly, they were focused on the gospel. And, and today I hear an awful lot that there's just so much going on that we have to divide our efforts as the church. You can't just, you know, preach the gospel. That's, that's, that's to put your head in the sand. Well, these people had at least as much going on as we do in their world. They were oppressed people. There were oppressed people with a, a monarch over them. And, and in Jerusalem, they were being oppressed for their religion. Throughout the, the uh, entire known world, we see all sorts of suffering uh, on the part of Christians. They were living in Antioch in the midst of great debauchery. We'll talk about that in a moment. That could have sidetracked them. They could have said, listen, before we get to the good news stuff, let's also acknowledge that we've got to have great social reform. We've got to have all sorts of things happening on the grassroots level. No, instead, they go straight to the gospel, to the heart. In verse 19, we're told that there were people speaking the word. They're speaking the word of God. To the Jews. Well, what does that mean? Well, we see that in the, the parallel in verse 20. Others came preaching the Lord Jesus to Gentiles as well. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. That is what saves. The message of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ who came and paid for our sins, who died on a cross and rose again. And they are bringing that message to everyone. This is what the Puritans called promiscuous evangelism. I used that term a few weeks ago and got some funny looks, and that's why it's such a fun term. They, they meant just promiscuous evangelism means you essentially, you get around. And wherever you go, you're proclaiming the gospel. I think maybe, Lisa, we need a thing on the sign there that says we are a promiscuous church. Maybe not. But, but they, were, they were bringing the gospel wherever they went. And Antioch, of all places. Let me tell you a little about Antioch. It was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was, it was a great place, but it was a bad place. Maybe not unlike that place Will's on his way to right now. 
We mentioned Antiochus last week, this this monster of a tyrant who defiled the temple. Antioch is named after him and his line. If Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish faith, kind of the spiritual place, and Athens was the center of philosophical thought and academia, well then, Antioch was sort of the hub of cosmopolitan worldliness. And there was good that came with that. There were a lot of different kind of people together. You had Arabs and Greeks and Jews trading, intermingling in a melting pot sort of situation. It was for that reason, and and because it was the capital, it was a center of political power. After Rome, you had Alexandria and Egypt, and then Antioch were the, the next level down of great cities in the Roman Empire. But Antioch was also the center of several blasphemous pagan cults whose so-called sacred rites involved sexual immorality and exploitation of people and cult prostitution. It was a place that a lot of people wanted to just kind of forget about. You know, there's a place that people have forgotten about around here. I remember talking to one of our older members who's with the Lord now, telling me about the tunnel that once went under Cedar Street. Who remembers the tunnel? There was a tunnel so the kids wouldn't get hit by the cars, right, on the way to go to school. But over time, the tunnel became, not my words, a passion pit. Very tawdry. A passion pit. Because it was a passion pit, they filled it in. There were an awful lot of passion pits in Antioch. It was known as a place where you could go here or there or there and have sexual rendezvous, just anonymous. There was all sorts of fornication. Even the the Romans looked down on it. There was a place called the Grove of Apollo, a a notorious park where people gathered and, and did the most debaucherous of things. And you can see perhaps someone like Paul coming out of Phariseeism, or, or even someone like Peter or James or John who tend to think of themselves at their worst as being righteous of their own righteousness. You could, you could see a kind of tendency to want to just say, you know what, Antioch is a passion pit. Fill it in. Forget about it. And just consign it to the judgment of God. But the gospel does not write people off, much less whole cities, contra to what James and John wanted to do with the Samaritan village that would not accept them. The the gospel is the means by which God saves all kinds of people. And in Antioch, there were all kinds of people. And so the gospel is proclaimed there, and the grace of God is offered to the people living there. And this is a new height or a new low, depending on who you are, looking from the outside. Because at first they were proclaiming the gospel to people who already knew the Old Testament. They were rooted in worshiping the God of Israel, the very same God who we worship in the New Testament. It wasn't that big of a stretch. Then we see them going to the Samaritans, the God-fearing Greeks, those who are one step removed, but they're still sort of grounded in the same faith. Right? Even with Cornelius. He's a God-fearer. You read his resume in the book of Acts. He's like the nicest guy you could ever imagine. He's doing all sorts of wonderful things. But with Antioch, with Antioch, basically, they're now going to a place that has a Jewish minority and a full-on pagan Gentile majority, preaching the gospel to those who do not want to hear it. Not those who are, oh, you're very close to the kingdom of heaven, but those who are, whoa, you are far and moving in the wrong direction. 
Those who would hear the gospel, and most of them would say, yeah, okay, here's a denarius, call someone who cares. I enjoy my life at the Apollo Grove. I don't want to change. This is very much like what evangelism looks like in a post-Christian Western world like the one that we live in. It's starting to look a lot more relatable now at this point in the book of Acts. Antioch, the most unlikely city for the church to gain a strong foothold in, we will see becomes the first home base for world missions. Maybe just because it's the kind of channel, the gateway between the East and the West, and it was logistically in the right spot. Maybe because all sorts of different kind of people are there, and so the gospel naturally goes out. Whatever the reason, it becomes the hub. It's not just somewhere, well, okay, I guess we have to let there be Christians in Antioch. But Antioch is where Christians are first called Christians. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 22 The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, it doesn't doesn't tell us exactly why Barnabas was sent by the elders to Antioch. It's assumed often that he was sent to investigate, that it's very similar to how when there were reports of people coming to faith in Samaria, they sent Peter and John down. See what's going on. Make sure it's kosher. Make sure everybody is, is really turning to Christ. We don't know for sure. That's a possibility. On one hand, it would kind of make sense to send Barnabas since he was from Cyprus, and it's people from Cyrene and Cyprus who are doing the preaching. But on the other hand... I don't think you send an encourager to do the job of an investigator. I mean, this, this doesn't, he doesn't seem like he has the right temperament to go down and be like, I'm Inspector Barnabas, and I'm going to make sure all these things are, are checked off on the checklist and, and everything's in order, and then I'm going to report back to the boss. It seems to me that he's sent less as an inspector, more as an ambassador, but it doesn't really matter because he arrives, he sees what's going on, and he immediately rejoices when he sees God's grace at work. We've already looked fairly closely at Barnabas, whose name originally was Joseph, and the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, means son of encouragement. We saw, it was the last Sunday of 2018, that he was generous and kind and, not surprisingly, encouraging. And it makes sense that if you're looking to start a a world missions super team, you've got to have a Barnabas, right? You've got to have an encourager. That's one of the superpowers that has to be, if you're making the Avengers of world missions, you you have to have a Barnabas. And, and, And so they start with him, one who will encourage, one who shows support. He, he, he's making an all-star team, essentially, and he will be the first one because perhaps encouragement is the most important thing for new Christians. He was not just a Jew, but a Levite. He was part of the power structure in Jerusalem. If he was anybody else, you could see him being very skeptical and maybe a little snooty about all this. He could look there and say, well, yeah, I can't really find any reason to shut them down, but I'm not excited about it. It would be a very different manifestation of the church than what they had in Jerusalem, rooted in the temple worship and the synagogue. Here now the Gentiles worshiping in undoubtedly new and different ways. He he might have said, well, fine, let them have their little church too, if they must. But he doesn't. He rejoices. He's filled with joy. 
He was, after all, according to verse 24, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I sometimes think about the words of Jesus in Luke 18 when somebody said, hey, good teacher. And Jesus was like, who, me? Why you call me good? No one's good but God himself. Which is also why my mentor, Dr. Pikey, when I was in college, if he said, how are you? And I said, good, would say, who told you you were good? But we see here that it's not his own goodness that manifests itself in Barnabas's good deeds and encouragement and self-giving love. Rather, it's because he's filled with faith, which is granted to him by God and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. God, the Spirit, it's because he is now full that he is good. God is good in him. And that is why he can rejoice when he looks at these people in Antioch, of all places, coming to faith. So there is certainly a sense in which the gospel overrides everything else. They weren't waiting on circumstance. They were focused instead on the gospel. Thirdly, they were patient. They were in it for the long haul. They recognized that, like Paul will later write, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. They were taking it slow. We have in the book of Acts all these indicators of how many people were coming to faith. And we have that here as well. But again, remember, this seems very compressed. It's taken a while. And they're willing to take a while. Their goal isn't huge numbers so that we can look great. Rather, their goal is glorify God by proclaiming the gospel and teach everything that Jesus commanded. Yes, many were added to their number, but it was the result of a lot of ongoing daily ministry. Look at verse 23. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The NIV says he encouraged them all, which shouldn't surprise us because he's the encourager. But encouragement, notice, is not some generic thing in the Bible. Just like to believe, to have faith. It's not some generic thing. It can't be done without an object. The little signs that say believe that I always pick on, and I always want to say what? Believe in aliens? I believe I can fly? I believe I can touch the sky? What? Believe what? Believe something particular. We believe the gospel. Well, when we read someone is an encourager and they encourage, it's not a general hang in there like the cat on the, the thing and the poster in the 80s. No, there's content to it. And so there's content. We, we could actually translate this that he exhorted them or encouraged them, comma, open quotes, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, close quotes. He's exhorting them and encouraging them specifically to remain faithful and steadfast because the temptations are coming to fall back into old ways. This is not a one-time thing. This is not Barnabas going, well, everything looks good, so just keep it up. I don't want to come back here and find everything's falling apart. No, it's in what's called the imperfect tense. He was exhorting. He was encouraging. This went on for a while. He stayed with them. He recognized you have to invest in the lives of people you want to dis disciple, that you have to be patient. Barnabas, like Jesus, saw a sheep without a shepherd, and after praising God for what he'd already begun to do in their midst, he's moved with compassion to help shepherd them, not to begin assessing them and criticizing them. Stands in stark contrast to those critics in the last passage, which we looked at last week. 
Undoubtedly, these new converts were struggling with old lives of rampant sin, calling to them the siren song of, of everything around them, temple prostitution, everything that went around with being in Antioch. And I fear many professing Christians would, would rather stand by or sit by by their keyboard and kind of judge and wait for the person to fall and whisper about it with their friends than do the hard work, the noble and godly work of walking alongside. And when someone does fall, helping to pick them up and going to God with them for reconciliation. He's so patient here that he recognizes he needs some help if Antioch is going to become a strong and healthy church and a growing church and continue to grow. He can't do it all by himself. After all, Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. And so he does start building this team. It becomes a dynamic duo. His mind goes, of course, to Saul of Tarsus. It's interesting to me that Barnabas at this point, we think of them backwards. Paul is the famous one. Barnabas is the, the Robin to his Batman. That's not how it was at the beginning. Barnabas was a household name amongst Christians. He was a big shot. Saul, he was kind of a deep cut. Oh yeah, I remember that guy like years ago, like a dozen years ago or more. He was persecuting the church. I heard he got saved. I think he's in, I don't know, Tarsus or something. I don't know. What's he up to? There was no Wikipedia to check on. And yet Barnabas doesn't say, no, 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 I'll be the one who does all this. I'm the significant one here. I'm, I'm the one who can make it happen. He knows he can't do it on his own. I think it's wonderful to see as new churches are continually being planted that, that denominations and church planting ministries are moving away from the model of one guy or one woman going in and saying, all right, it's, just all, it's all on my shoulders, and instead having teams, church planting teams, people with different skills and talents and gifts and temperaments that complement each other. And Paul's and Barnabas's gifts complement each other. And their temperaments are like opposite. And that complements, no one was like, you know, Paul, we ought to call you son of encouragement. <laughs> Not Paul. But that's okay. Together, one of, them, one of them says, this is the truth. And the other one says, and this is what it sounds like in love. Two are better than one. We read that in Ecclesiastes, and a cord of three strands cannot be broken easily, and by the time they leave Antioch, there's three of them. The team's growing. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, PB and J. They go together well. So this is the priority, the gospel. And his priority here in his patience is how can I help this church be rooted in God's word and sound doctrine because they don't know anything. They've not really even encountered the true God. They know all sorts of stuff about false pagan religion, but how can I give them a foundation? And the Spirit brings to mind Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He's in Tarsus somewhere. That's 100 miles away, and then when you get there, you've got to find him, but that's not too difficult for Barnabas. He's going to do it because Paul has great training in the Scriptures, he studied under Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis. He has a world-class education at the University of Tarsus. He knows all of the poets and philosophers of the heathen world. He's just as at home in a Jewish synagogue as he is on the Areopagus, talking with Greek-speaking people in the world of the Gentiles. But most importantly, Barnabas was there when Paul presented himself to the apostles, and he heard from Paul's own lips how his conversion happened and his calling, and he knows that God had called him as, quote, the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's who we need right now, as the Gentiles are en masse coming to faith. I need to go find that apostle to the Gentiles and bring him back. That takes patience. 
but it was worth it. We see, we see three times reference to large numbers in this passage. In verse 21, a great number turned to the Lord and believed. Then Barnabas arrives, and we see a great many people turn to the Lord. In the Greek, that's aklos hikanos. Aklos is a crowd. It's like a, a huge crowd turned to the Lord. Then in verse 26, after Paul has arrived, we read once again that a great many people, aklos hikanos, were taught by Paul and Barnabas for a full year. A great number, a great crowd came to faith, and wouldn't you know it, a great number, a great crowd were taught day after day, week after week. We love to celebrate the, the big, wow, a lot of people came forward, put their faith in Jesus. But after that comes the teaching, the discipling, the walking with day by day. Patience is required, or even a big church will burn out pretty quick. Fourthly, they were kingdom-minded. We see in, in their church a desire to help other congregations and be part of something that is bigger than themselves and their own local congregation. The, the, the other churches aren't competition for them. They are brothers and sisters. They're other members of the same body. Churches can grow with a very closed-off attitude of we're right and everyone else is wrong and don't have anything else to do with them. Very culty kind of vibe. But you know what? There's no hand of God in that. And I've noticed over the last couple of years, all sorts of these very big mega churches just imploding many different apparent causes. But when you zoom out, you go, wow, all of them have one thing in common. They presented themselves as the only place to really find the truth. And there was very great skepticism of those on the outside and very little cooperating with other congregations and churches as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's church-to-church support, though, here in Acts 11. It's, it's evidenced by their willingness to reach out and help those in Judea. And it starts with this guy, Agabus, giving a prophecy. Now, we know that in the book of Acts, there were people prophesying, recognize that Foretelling, predicting the future, was a small part of that. Forthtelling, kind of expositing the word of God, was the majority. But this guy, Agabus, he's a foreteller. He, he tells you what's going to happen in the future. He's going to do it again in chapter 21. He's right both times. And he predicts a famine, which actually does come. We have plenty of historical evidence of it under the reign of Claudius. It's here and there at different times around the empire, and it affects Judea, we think, between 44 and 48 AD. And the problem is that the church there is going to struggle especially hard, not only because they're an underclass more and more in Jerusalem, but because when many people fled because of the martyrdom of Stephen, you have to understand, those would be the, the wealthiest people. I mean, what kind of person can pick everything up, relocate to a different part of the world, and start over? Many people didn't have the means, and those are the ones left behind. And so you have a church that is struggling already. There's persecution, as we'll see next week. Soon they'll be struggling also with a lack of resources and famine. But they will not be abandoned by the church universal to struggle alone. These Christians in Antioch, these new Christians say, hey, you sent us Paul and Barnabas to encourage us and teach us. We'll send you aid so that you have something to eat. I'm sure it helped that Barnabas, who had already modeled this kind of self-giving love from the first time we encountered him, is there with them as an example of how to give. 
But more than that, it's just beautiful that the daughter church is able to turn around and help the mother church. It's not a one-way thing. They're able to support the church that has been supporting them. So they're kingdom-minded. And as a result, I believe, of these elements primarily, we see the world taking notice of the church. And, and that manifests itself in the world giving these people a name that they hadn't had before, and that was the name Christians. It is in Antioch where they were called Christians first. Why now? Why at this point? I mean, the, the believers had called themselves different things. The way, followers of the way, they'd called themselves the saints. And, and from outside, the, the Jews just thought of them as kind of blasphemers or rabble-rousers. The Romans just thought of them as another group of Jews. And they, they looked at them and said, okay, now we got the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and these Christ ones. Who cares? So many, I don't care to keep track. But something changed here. Perhaps it was the presence of so many Gentile believers that led to their new name. It wouldn't be any longer just another group of Jews. Rather, this is moving well beyond that. They now had an identity of their own, not just a splinter group of an existing religious category, but their own distinct identity, and they couldn't have asked for a better label to be applied to them than Christian. It means one associated with Christ or one belonging to Christ. What a wonderful name to have. One belonging to Christ. And it was probably not given to them as an honor. It's probably kind of mocking. It's probably given to them as, as a pejorative name. Well, the way the word comes about is you just take the, the word Christ and then in Latin you would add the, the, the suffix iani or ianus and, and you see it throughout even the scriptures. There are the Herodians, right? The Herodians are those who follow Herod. They kind of belong to him and his group. It's a political thing in that case. You had the Augustinians, who at this time were not monks following St. Augustine, who, who was not yet alive, but these were people devoted to the adoration of Caesar. And then instead of adoring Caesar, these Christians, these Christiani, adore Jesus. That's been the distinction throughout. Kyrios Christos, Caesar is Lord, and they answer no. Kyrios, uh, or, or Kyrios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, and they answer no. Kyrios Christos, Christ is Lord, even if it means their own death or imprisonment. When Ironsides, the, the great evangelist, was traveling through China, he, he wrote that he was often introduced as a Yasu Yan, and he had no idea what it meant. And finally he asked, is that the word for, for Christian or pastor, or what does it mean? And the man with him explained that it simply meant a Christ man. What a great title. To be a Christ man, a Christ woman, a person who belongs to Jesus. And, and, and they're called Christians because there's nothing else that they have in common at this point. Not anymore. Not language, not race, not culture, not background, not anything. Just Jesus. He's the one that holds them together. He's the thing they have in common. And yet here they are sticking their necks out and giving of themselves to help one another. By the end of the book, King Agrippa uses the same word. Again, probably as kind of a punchline. When he explains, I'm a Caesar guy, and you think that you will so quickly persuade me to become a Christian? A, a one that belongs to Christ instead of Caesar? It's the exact opposite. And by the time Peter writes his first epistle, he uses the term Christian with no trace of irony whatsoever to describe people who belong to Jesus. 
Always blows my mind then that people tend to move away from that name, especially lately. I mean, this is something that changed the way that Christians thought of themselves as much as it changed the way that people thought of Christians. They now had their own separate identity. They were, they were beginning to recognize that they were cutting ties with the old leaven that came before. Even after Paul parts ways with Barnabas, he continues to solicit offerings to aid the church in Jerusalem. But this is the first time it happened. This is perhaps the first time anything like this had happened. And it's Greeks, moved by the Spirit, spontaneously offering help to Jewish believers. This was an incredibly rare thing. They had the example and encouragement of Barnabas. And so these Gentiles, now following Jesus, send help to people of another race who speak another language in a very different kind of city, very far from where they live. This was basically unheard of before the church appeared on the earth. In other words, these believers in Antioch earned the name Christian, belonging to Christ, a Christ one, a Christ man, a Christ woman. And then I hear people, oh, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't like that word. I'm a Christ follower. I'm not a Christian, but I do have a personal relationship with Jesus. Don't be too good for this name. Just like the cross itself, this began as a thing of contempt and has been embraced by the church, embraced by the, the church that recognizes that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. John Montgomery Boyce suggested a slightly different reading of this verse here, that it was in Antioch where they were called Christians first. Kind of a play on words. He said in Antioch, yes, they were first called Christians, but in Antioch they were also Christians first. They weren't Gentiles or Jews first. They weren't slave or free first. They weren't Romans or Greeks or whatever first. If they were any of those things first, if that was their core identity, then it wouldn't have played out the way it did. They wouldn't have sent aid to those in Judea. The, the church would have struggled in many ways that it didn't have to because the church is looking out for the church because they were Christians first. They weren't rich what motivated them to do this is that they loved Jesus and they knew that it was the right thing to do to support the church where it was struggling. They, they, they knew that, and you know, when we think in, in the West about a, a great move of God, God moving his hand, we think in these terms often the, the huge crowd, the great number coming to the Lord, and we think for whatever reason in terms of big buildings and facilities and multiple campuses and lots of resources, but these Christians were not rich. And what money they had, they were now sending as they were able to another church. This is an example for us today. Because we see today that the greatest growth in the church is not in the West, where we got money all over the place comparatively. No, it's South and East. The growth of the gospel is in is in Asia. The growth of the gospel is in Africa. Did you know in 1900, there were 9 million Christians in all of Africa? Now there are more than 540 million Christians. And over the past 15 years, there's been more than a 50% increase in the number of people professing the Christian faith. God is at work in a huge way. Statistically speaking, these are not rich people in communities. They're struggling, impoverished. Not all of them, of course, but most of them. And yet, we'd do well not just to think, hmm, 
How can we send more Western missionaries? But to think, how can we support the nationals there who are already doing the work, the churches that are already reproducing? How can we be a Barnabas and offer encouragement to these Christians as their, as their faith is exploding in the midst of the African continent? And beyond that, how can they help us? How can we learn from them? How can we learn what God is doing in other parts of the world and get encouragement and counsel from those who are right in the midst of it? There is so much to be celebrated in this little text, and none of it would have happened if the people involved had not surrendered their old identities, their old assumptions, their old prejudices, their old priorities to the work of the Spirit. Yeah, he was a good man because he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And when we are full of faith in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will not be content to just stay inside. We're not going to wait for the green light from Jerusalem. We've got to proclaim the gospel. We've got to encourage. We've got to adorn the gospel with acts of love and service and mercy. We've got to be moved by compassion when we see other people suffer. We've got to have patience. We've got to focus on the gospel. We've got to be kingdom-minded, and we certainly can't rely on outward circumstances when greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would see growth in our church during a time when churches are, are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and then disappearing left and right. Lord, we, we pray for our nation. We pray for the Christian church. We pray for the church in Lansing. I pray for everyone who's gathered together today. Lord, there are churches where, where there are thousands gathered. There are churches where there are fewer than a dozen, and I pray for all of them, Lord. I know, I know ministers faithfully proclaiming the gospel in both settings. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray that huge crowds, that a great many would come to faith, and not just come to faith, but then be taught and discipled patiently, so that, Lord, there would be a continual cycle, a disciple cycle of disciples making disciples making disciples, a church that reproduces through love and proclaiming the good news. Lord, we, we thank you in advance for what you will continue to do in our midst this year, and we pray that you would continue to conform our hearts and our wills through your Holy Spirit to that, which was, that mind which was in Christ Jesus. That, Lord, we would not be proud but humble, that we would not be uh, choosy about who we want to attract to a church or who we want to bring the gospel to, but promiscuous, and that, Lord, we would look for help where it's needed, and we would offer help where we can, even if it does not benefit our own local congregation. Lord, may we be kingdom-minded. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.